I'm out of love. I'll pick you up when you're getting down. And out of all these things I've done, I will love you better now. What a joy to be here again with you on Cliff Central. This is Professor David Black, and our show today is entitled, as always, "Looking Up in Wonder" with David Block. I uh, always remember the joy of using telescopes, small telescopes, as a child, and uh, doing something which I just believe is just so exciting. It's just so awesome, as my twin boys would say. It's so chilling. And that is just to look up and gaze up at the night skies through a telescope. There's just something about astronomy that always causes you to do something which very, very few people actually do, and uh, that is simply to look up in wonder and awe and in majesty to this awesome starry vault that we see above our heads, the Milky Way. Now, of course, in any given field, there are pioneers. When I was a youngster, I remember admiring so much so Professor Chris Barnard. And just to refresh your memory, Chris Barnard performed the world's first heart transplant. It was on Louis Washkansky, and it is just amazing to hear of this prof. Being such, having such an incredible mind, having such an such an incredible pair of hands, having such an incredible team to guide him through the world's very first heart transplant. So in medicine, he was a unique pioneer. And so it is not only in the realms of medicine, but in the realms of astronomy as well. That you come across people who are absolutely true pioneers, who are legends in their fields, and these pioneers are exceedingly interesting to talk to, because they can share some amazing secrets of their life story, how their passion in their chosen field of expertise actually unfolded with time. These pioneers are diamonds. Such pioneers are gems because they unlock not only the mysteries of medicine or of the cosmos, but they unlock some of the key secrets, face and mysteries facing mankind today. On the line, joining me in looking up in wonder uh, from New York is one such pioneer. This is a man of extraordinary vision. This is a man of extraordinary foresight and knowledge and expertise. This is a pioneer uh, of the first cut, of the first cloth cut out of the first ilk. It is absolutely stunning to talk and introduce him to our cliffcentral.com listeners. His name is Bruce, Bruce Almagreen, who works in New York. And Bruce, it's just awesome, stunning. What a privilege to have you as such a pioneer join us as our very first guest on my radio show, 
cliffcentral.com. Well, hello, David. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, it's a great joy, and the lines sound perfectly clear. Bruce, uh, I'm just so thrilled that you have joined us, and hopefully uh, your wife, Debbie, is listening as well. And just to kick off the show for our listeners today, I'd love you to take us through on a slow walk as to why did you actually choose astronomy? Was there a certain event uh, which occurred? Was there an object in the sky, such as a comet, which ignited your passion in astronomy? What led you, out of all the multitudes of different subjects one could choose, what actually led you to study the night skies above? Yeah, it's it's fun to remember back to these uh, very youthful times. And there were probably several events that converged to lead to this current field. And one is my father told me, I remember I was quite young, that he wanted to be an astronomer, but because of the hard times of the Great Depression, he thought he'd be better off getting a more certain job, mm-hmm. <laughs> such as an engineer. So he became an engineer. Yes. But I do remember that and, and as sort of a, a dream. But also, when I was growing up, this was the era of Sputnik and the era there of is. the Great Space Race. And yes. there was a lot of effort in uh, the United States and elsewhere to um, educate young people in sciences, Yes. To familiarize them with math and the uh, possible jobs that might lie ahead in these fields, technical fields. Yes. So I was swept up in that as well as part of a, a large educational program uh, countrywide. So I think these all helped. But I know a lot of people who have a, a very young interest in astronomy and they follow it their whole life, whether or not they have a job doing that. Yes. Uh, it's something... That's just uh, amazing. It's a beautiful field. Yes. Um, wonderful to think about. Very expanding for one's mind to think of a place in the universe. It's uh, There are many qualities beyond the technical aspects yes. that draw people to that field. And so can you delineate? I mean, here you are as a youngster. There's the space race on. Who will land on the moon first? Sputnik is... Uh, at Key Focus Central Car, can you sort of, apart from the general trend of, uh, as you've described this field, just being so beautiful and so enigmatic, and uh, I love the way you use the words, Bruce, they're expanding the mind. Uh, is there, was there, for example, an event such as Halley's Comet or some sort of uh, event in the night sky, some astronomical event, where you suddenly looked up as a young boy and just said, wow, that is really what I'd like to partake in. Uh, no, I don't think so. We, we see the picture of Kepler being shown some astronomical object by his mother, and we, we think yes. of this vision of uh, a sudden flash. But yes. in fact, I had a small telescope when I was young, little four-inch reflector, and I couldn't see much. It was rather disappointing. You know, you'd point at a... At a galaxy, and it would be yes. just a faint little smudge. And so I, I don't think there were particular events. I remember following the usual astronomical news events, like eclipses and so on. But it was more an interest in in puzzles and in mathematics and in um, 
solving problems that brought me into this field. And it could have been many other fields except for that interest in astronomy. Yes. More of a, a challenge yes. of thinking rather than a particular event in the sky that I, I might want to solve someday. Now, what I'd like to ask you, Bruce, is you mentioned the word puzzles, and that's very interesting. When you, for example, take a stroll outside like you did with me to the Walter Sisulu Botanical Gardens, and the two of us actually walked to the waterfall, I'll never forget it, and uh, your wife Debbie was with us, and we just stood in awe and wonder listening to the cascading falls, the waterfalls. Uh, do you see, did you see that day? Were your first impressions mathematical ones of, wow, look at the turbulence and the swirls and just look at the cascading forces coming down in this immensity of immensities? Or do you just, did you just stand back and say, wow, there's a black eagle soaring above these cascading falls. Wow, there are just incredible clouds drifting slowly by. Do you see the world mathematically or in terms of art and beauty? Well, I, I do remember that day very well. And as you just mentioned, what did catch our attention more than anything were the beautiful eagles yes. very high up. So yes. We spent most of our time yes. looking for them. And I think that's so true. And in, in natural phenomena, our... Our experience, our culture uh, draws us to life and, and to the, the beauty around us that, that's involved in all the living things. And, yes. and to think of um, beauty in rocks and water and desert, there's certainly some there in the colors and the shapes. Yes. But nothing compares to the, the little creatures that uh, occupy that space. Yes. But in terms of mathematics, no, I think I don't see the world mathematically, but experience with physics and with the equations used to describe these natural phenomena yes. helps me to see things in that phenomena, the, the, the swirling water, the turbulence, the, the, um, the shear flows that might be in water, the acceleration as it falls down, the breaking into droplets with surface tension. I, I see these things and understand them. And yes. It's not... So mysterious. Mm -hmm. There's a beauty mm -hmm. still. Part of my brain will see that exquisite beauty, but the other part sort of says, yes, it, it looks normal. It looks the way it should. Mm -hmm. It's understandable. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a very um, comforting feeling, I think, to walk around and see natural phenomena and to understand the causes of it, the, the evolution, how storms progress in the sky and things like that. Yes. Because of a basic understanding of the equations that, that govern their, their motion. So let's take right. you, for example, on a walk through one of your famous museums in the city in which you work, New York. And uh, let's suppose there's a Van Gogh exhibition. And suppose one of his famous paintings portraying the swirling Milky Way uh, is up on the wall. What goes through the mindset of Bruce L. McGree? <laughs> right, and many times I've done that and been in museums with you too. Yes. I think it's very similar to what other people see because what's drawn in a painting is the 
filter through the brain of what an artist sees. Mm -hmm. So that artist, perhaps not familiar with equations of fluid dynamics, as we just sure. talked about, would not <laughs> yes. see the little swirls upon swirls, which Leonardo da Vinci drew, but which maybe Van Gogh did not, yes. would see instead uh, an overwhelming and an awe-inspiring impression of some beauty with the colors and the shapes, and placed in that picture certain things they were thinking about at the time, yes. certain impressions and emotions and events of the time. Mm -hmm. So it, it's interesting to that here is a picture through that person's head of a natural scene, and perhaps it's not even an exact natural scene as in a photograph, but a composed right. scene to make yes. a point. Yes. Um, and, and it's very enjoyable to do that, to place myself in Van Gogh's time or whoever it is, and to try to see the world as they saw it portrayed in a beautiful way, which is what partly what they were trying to do. Yes. Um, but it's not, it, it's very different from a photograph. There's a lot of emotion involved in art. Mm -hmm. There can be emotion in a photograph if the photographer catches it right or, or composes yes. it right. Yes. But uh, the, the art of the type that's composed with a hand or with an instrument yes. is really designed to tease out the emotional aspect of that view yes. or of that thought. Yes. Because emotions cannot be written with equations. They can't be described so analytically. Mm -hmm. And the art of various types seems to be one of the primary ways we mm. portray emotions to each other. We mm. can describe what we're feeling. Yes, There's a real role for that, quite different from the uh, factual or technical or, or mathematical aspects of the natural world. I see that also in art, and I enjoy that very much. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, just before I continue, Bruce, I'd just like to uh, invite the listeners to call in. The number is 0861-555-189. That's 0861-555-189. If you're calling from overseas, abroad, internationally, it's plus 27861-555-189. You can reach us on Twitter feed at cliffcentral.com, on Instagram at cliffcentral, on Facebook at cliffcentral, and the WeChat ID is, of course, cliffcentral. We are busy talking to uh, Dr. Bruce Almagreen, uh, one of the world's great pioneers in the realms of astronomy and astrophysics, as well as computers, one of the greatest minds of the age. Uh, in this field, and we're just going to take a short break and listen to some incredibly interesting music by one of my favorite artists, Enya. Bruce, Bruce, please stay on the line. of in 
There we have one of my very favorite artists and songs, Paint the Sky with Stars. Who will paint the midnight star? Who? Oh, who? We ask. We have the privilege on cliffcentral.com this afternoon looking up with David Block to be speaking to a true legend in my field, Bruce Almagreen who works in um, New York, and he is is joining us online by telephone from New York. Now, for a moment, we've just been discussing the world of art and the world of science, and Bruce mentioned, of course, the world of emotion. And we always think of artists as being people filled with emotion. But I'd like to say, Bruce, that uh, scientists too show their emotions in what they do. You see it in referee reports, for example. Somebody might become quite vitriolic upon seeing a certain paper because it touches a central theme that they simply don't like. I remember once seeing a paper and the Hubble constant was claimed to be 100 and it should be 50 according to Sandage and the emotions were unbelievably at an all-time high. Would you agree with me, Bruce, that scientists, too, are people filled with emotion, even though they might be masked by equations? Well, we sometimes take work a bit personally, and that that could be the case. But the the sky is out there to measure equally for everyone. Yes. And what you're seeing here is general uncertainty, where a person's best effort with whatever equipment they have, gets uh, one particular number or one particular uh, set of observations leading to an idea. And other people using their different equipment um, could get different numbers. Yes. And each one has done the very best they can. So, they're, of course, they feel certain within their own realm that uh, that's the answer. But, of course, uh, there's always uncertainty. And this uncertainty is unpredictable and often it's not understandable. It just takes another generation of equipment to all get better and to mm-hmm. finally mm-hmm. get a more precise mm-hmm. answer. And then then people will agree. And, of course, a good exercise is to go back and trace down where the slight error came from. And, and it's eventually all understandable. But, but it is to share. And there is parallel efforts on many fields, which leads to people having... Ideas, in some cases, they're the same. In some cases, they differ. Yes. Very uh, interesting marketplace of ideas. Yes. Uh, and that's what makes uh, science progress. It's the discussion and the debate and the eventual resolution of these problems. And then we move on and yes. do it again for the next problem. I must tell our listeners that uh, Bruce and I had a unique privilege. We both share 60th birthday, one to bind, one to base two one in the real sense of um, the Gregorian calendar. But Bruce and I share 60th birthday. And so uh, we were both really treated to the most incredible bash, if you like, um, cerebral bash, uh, around 50 astronomers from around the world, from Harvard to Australia, flew into the islands of the Seychelles. In fact, the island of Mahe, And Bruce and I stood in awe and wonder as some of the world's real luminary giants flew in 
and treated us to some of the most incredible presentations, scientific presentations, that is, that we've ever been exposed to. But Bruce, wearing our technical hats now just for a moment, there's a tremendous amount of discussion, of course, in our country about South Africa largely winning the SKA bid, uh, two-thirds to us and around a third to Australia. And uh, people generally uh, need some analogies to try and understand the sort of power which will be uh, exhibited by the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array. Now, of course, I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg, Gauteng, and here we are subject very uh, frequently so at certain times of the year to thunderstorms. And these thunderstorms build up, you see your bolts of lightning, and then suddenly there's an absolute deluge of water. Bruce, I'd like you, first of all, to describe, uh, for example, what Meerkat is, what the SKA dream is, and then perhaps as you walk us through to take us to the analogy of raindrops falling from the sky. <laughs> right. Well, the current building of telescopes is uh, well underway in the Karoo Desert. They're putting together a system they'll call Meerkat. Yes. Uh, K-A-T, or Karoo Array Telescope, and Meerkat is a bigger version, more of it, uh, which will be 64 dishes, each about 13 meters. So that will be within a, oh, maybe a kilometer or so core region, an eight-kilometer extent, each telescope pointing in the same direction of the sky, and then they can be added together to make uh, great sensitivity, or they can be multiplied in each pair mm -hmm. of telescopes yes. to uh, make multiple interferometers, which, which can eventually make maps. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, in great detail of objects in the sky. So you are saying there's uh, 64 individual receivers? There will be. That's right. Mm -hmm. So in a couple of years, all those 64 will be in place and uh, able to make very exquisite maps with about, at, uh, at a gigahertz or so frequency, with about five arc seconds resolution. That's about the angular size of the outer planets Uranus and Neptune. Yes. Um, with a field of view of what can be seen all at once, about two times the size of the moon. Yes. So it'll, it'll make uh, exquisite maps of the radio sky, which includes uh, galaxies near and far and many mm -hmm. other kinds of mm -hmm. objects that emit in radio waves. And I was wondering how bright the Milky Way would be if it's at a distance of a typical other galaxy we have a, a giant cluster of galaxies near us in virgo which is about is 60 million about, light years away i would say bruce that's yeah that's about right mm -hmm. something like that and 30 or so a million light years and if we put the milky way at that distance yes then the most of the gas in the milky way emitting at this gigahertz frequency it emits a uh, an atomic transition at this a frequency, which is about 21 centimeter wavelength. Yes. The amount of light coming to us from the Milky Way at that distance would be about the one photon of light. Yes. Uh, a quantum unit, which is a photon emitted every time 
an electron in a hydrogen atom flips its orientation in the uh, as it as it orbits around it flips from uh, one orientation relative to the spin of the nucleus to another correct that emits a, one of these little quanta or photon of light and what we would see at the earth for the milky way at that distance is about one photon per second per square centimeter so that's one, one per photon per, per second per square centimeter. Good. That's yes. what we would get from the Milky Way at that mm -hmm. typical distance where there are lots and lots of galaxies like the Milky Way, maybe yes. a, a thousand in Virgo. Yes. So that, so so you're wondering about raindrops, and and if you consider a storm, which leaves maybe a centimeter of rain on the yes. ground after yes. raining for an hour yes. or so, yes, like we have in Gauteng, yes. The drop rate for that storm is less than the photon rate by about a factor of several hundred. That's incredible. So what you're saying is your centimeter worth of rain is not nearly what is being received from this uh, galaxy at uh, 60 million light years. That's right. So the Milky Way bathes us in these droplets of light, the photons. Mm -hmm at a, a rate of several times, several hundred times higher mm -hmm. than a typical uh, thunderstorm will, will rain drops. Yes. But in fact, the energy of these photons is so, so weak yes. compared to the energy of a droplet. A droplet of rain maybe falls eight meters per second or something like that. And if you consider the energy, yes. the energy of a photon of this light is the same as the the falling, moving energy of a single molecule of water at yes. that speed. Yes, yes. Not a whole droplet, but a single molecule, molecule of water. Yes. So imagine detecting a single molecule of water mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. falling down with the speed of a raindrop. Mm -hmm. It's such a tiny amount of energy. Which would be and about 8 meters per second, all, yes. Yeah, that's why you need all of this collecting area, the, the metal, each... Each dish, 13-some meters, 64 of them spread out in the mm -hmm. crew mm -hmm. to build up enough of these photons. And altogether, they'll get about 100 million of these photons per second mm -hmm. to build up enough. And so they can detect altogether a Milky Way-type galaxy at distance in about one second of integration. That's incredible. pretty fast. That's extreme. It's pretty fast because mm -hmm. they, in that time, they're receiving several hundred gigabytes of data yes all of these telescopes are converting that electromagnetic light into ones and zeros at a rate of about a gigahertz the same as the processor rate on your computer mm -hmm. so um in that one second there's several hundred gigabytes of data which is about what your hard disk and your computer can store mm -hmm. and inside all that data which is mostly noise by far it's mostly noise mm -hmm. There's enough information to see the Milky Way in its hydrogen gas at the distance of the Virgo supercluster. So, Bruce, so that's what it takes. It's yes. very, very possible. One yes. second integration is not much. No, no, no. Yeah. After a whole day of of looking in one direction of the sky, eight hours as it transits overhead, you can see galaxies that may be ten times further away than the of course. Virgo cluster, of which course. is now suddenly a million galaxies like the Milky Way. You of can course. See. So, so what, there's a tremendous amount to observe with this very, very sensitive telescope that will be there in a couple of years. 
So what you're saying is you'd really need a rainstorm of a couple of meters per hour, <laughs> right? If you had to, I mean, you did the sums. That's Tell right. us about them. I mean, it's a few That's meters right. an hour, right? The equivalent. To get the, to get the equivalent droplet rate yes. as the photon rate coming yes. in. Yes. But each photon is so low energy, you need to, uh, you need a system like yes. Meerkat to see it. Now, Bruce, you of course have said that, uh, you know, a gigabyte in one second. I mean, I started off as a student and I remember we had these floppy disks which you used to put in and, uh, you know, Bill Gates saying 250K or 256K would be enough for anybody or everybody. Um, <laughs> with a sort of, uh, you know, you telling us that in one second you've got a gig and, I mean, what, what units will the computers which you are developing in New York, what sort of units are you going to be using because per second? Because, I mean, here you've got 64 of these dishes. I mean, how much data do you expect to store in a day? And what is the transfer rate going to be? I mean, these computers uh, surely don't exist in, the, in their current form on Earth. Right. The, the Meerkat with its 64 antenna yes. are putting out something like several hundred gigabytes per second. Yes. That, that can't be stored, really. There's no intent to store all that. It has to be processed on the fly and summed up because, as I said, the important information is just a tiny, tiny part of that. Most of it's noise, mm-hmm. like a static kind of noise you might hear in your radio. Um, so eventually it will get saved and stored in a different form and then uh, worked with, manipulated to try to reconstruct the maps yes. that this interferometer sees. Yes. The kind of uh, computational power to do that mm-hmm. is quite feasible for the time scale that they're thinking about mm-hmm. in a couple of years. But the, if, you, if you want to start talking about numbers that are Almost unimaginable. Yes, yes, let's uh, do we that. We can talk about the full square kilometer rate. Mm-hmm. The Meerkat will only be a few percent of course. the size of the full square kilometer rate, which is named that because it'll have about a square kilometer worth of metal to collect all these photons Yes, in various pieces all around, um, out to several thousand kilometers away from its core in the Karoo. Mm-hmm. Might be uh, 3,000 telescopes all over. Mm-hmm. But the... The kind of computational power yes. required in yes. this eight to ten year time scale is is about a billion times what's in your computer now. So if we if we consider all the computers in the world now, all the PCs, all the cell phones which have computers, they're on the order of a couple billion of those, about one one per person. Yes. And so the total computational power of all of those computers in the world now yes. is about the same as what will have to be concentrated in the Karoo area or in Cape Town area in South Africa to process the full square kilometer area when it's ready. That's incredible. This is feasible. Computers are moving in this direction, but it is an unimaginable number now mm. um, because it has to be built with a reasonable amount of power consumption. It has to be organized in a way that it really works. And the components have to be so reliable that they don't, you know, something's not breaking every second. Yes, of course. That that sort of thing. So it's quite a challenge for computers, but a a wonderful challenge. Um, 
there there will be other uses for computers that big at the time, just in driving our everyday business and interactions and so on, which is becoming more and more yes. uh, computer intensive. So just, there is an interesting. Yeah, go ahead, David. So in other words, just to summarize and then you carry on, please, is that what you're saying is that if we've got a billion computers on planet Earth, on terra firma right now, what you are saying to us at uh, cliffcentral.com is that you'd need everyone switched on and working together to be able to process the data which will be streaming forth from outer space and collected by the square kilometer array. Is that right? That's right. And it will all have to be concentrated there where the data is. That's called an exa floating point operation, an exa multiplier per second. Exa scale refers to one with 18 zeros. Big, big number. It's a billion, billion. <laughs> That's incredible. Big, big number. But what's so amazing is that although it seems large compared to what we're used to in computers, it's it's a number that's very comparable to the scale of what can be measured in the universe. So, for example, we can see at great distance out to a place which is so far away that when the light left it, galaxies were just beginning to form. Yes. So this is sort of the edge of our visible horizon of the universe. Mm-hmm. And we can see galaxies out to that edge. And if we try to look further, galaxies weren't born yet. Yes. So we can see, essentially, if we could look in all different directions, we could see all the galaxies. And we know about how many there are locally per unit volume. We know mm-hmm. the density. Mm-hmm. So just projecting that out to this distance, mm-hmm. you get about 10, 20, 30 trillion possible galaxies Correct. that we can see. Mm-hmm. And if you imagine making a table of all of them, though we wouldn't have the time to do this, there's just too many to point at with our telescopes and count, but if you imagine making a table with uh, a bunch of numbers for each, you know, position and the yes. brightness and so on, color, the size of that catalog is only several petabytes. Petabyte is 10 to the 15th. Mm-hmm. Right? Several petabytes is something that companies have right now to store the data on their customers. It's something mm-hmm. banks keep. It's something mm-hmm. computer centers mm-hmm. keep. Mm-hmm. If you were to try to make a little map of all these galaxies, which would be impossible, really, because it would just take too long, um, that, again, is several tens of petabytes, something that is quite feasible now. It would be maybe several, three or four refrigerator-sized units of tape storage. Yes, yes. So we could tally all the galaxies in principle and store them on the kinds of computers we have today. And if you count stars, we know about the average star density Mm -hmm. in the universe. Mm -hmm. You count them out to the edge. They're about, um, well, let's say one with 20-some zeros behind it. Yes. But the kinds of computers around in 10 years, an exascale, yes. that could, if we consider the stars that have been around long enough to actually see today, all those that have formed, mm-hmm. many of them have died. Mm-hmm. But if we consider the number that we'd actually see looking as deep as we could in all these galaxies, mm-hmm. an exascale, 
scale computer could count them all in one second. I think that's incredible. I mean, you know, the fact that these X are 10 to the 18, I mean, the, the storage capacity is just, it's absolutely of the first rank. And uh, do you believe that we'll have this, this sort of technology up and running in about 10 years, Bruce? Of, yes, most likely. That's the direction most of the pundits who forecast these things are yes. are saying. Yes. That uh, we're already in the uh, several tens of peta uh, plot yes. sales, yes. which is which is approaching a percent of the um, or several percent of the exascale. Yes. So it's conceivable that within ten years, if progress continues um, that we will have computers like this. You are listening to Bruce Almagreen from New York. The number to dial in if you have any questions is 0861 The Twitter feed is at cliffcentral.com Instagram you can reach us at cliffcentral on Facebook at cliffcentral the WeChat ID is Cliff Central. You can reach me on Twitter, David Block, at Starry Galaxy Man. That's my handle on Twitter. And if you want to read my uh, web link, it's just www.davidblock, one word, .co.za. We have the unique privilege of picking the mindset in a real sense of the legendary Bruce Elmagree, who, interestingly enough, works for one of the world's largest uh, computer companies based in New York, New York City, and uh, he's much involved in the development of cutting-edge, not only science, but cutting-edge computers, where we move from the petaflop scale of 10 to the 15, where we start scratching the cutting edge, which I spoke to you of last week, of 10 to the 18. Uh, the EXA. Now, we are just going to have another short break with Enya, and we'll continue our conversation with Bruce Almagreen in New York.
listening to David Block, looking up with Professor David Block and our studio guest via the telephone lines this afternoon is Bruce Elmergreen, who actually works for one of the world's largest computer companies, which is IBM in New York. And uh, Bruce is right at the cutting edge of, you know, the EXA, PEDA, I mean, these PEDA flops, I mean, it really stretches the mind beyond limits. But now, what I would like us to do, having worn our technical hats, is to actually go to your dinner table, Bruce. In other words, suppose you're in the Seychelles, as you and I were, together with our beloved spouses. Suppose you are having dinner with uh, your beloved wife, Debbie Elmer Green. What does Bruce Elmer Green, what do Bruce and Debbie talk about, given that Debbie is also an astronomer? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I suppose we're pretty normal in the sense that we talk about everyday things. You know, there's most of our, our lives are handling everyday things. And, and although we both do astronomy, the things we do together are so similar, there's, there's not a lot of need for instruction or detail. With just a few words, we can indicate interesting directions to go or things to try. So like normal people discussing normal everyday events, I think uh, the technical aspects are at a minimum. <laughs> so in other I'm words, sure. when, when you were at, say, in the Seychelles and you're sharing a table with Debbie, you don't talk shop. Of course, I noticed when we were on a boat, a catamaran cruise in the Seychelles, everybody homes in on you and you start talking science and astronomy and you didn't have time to absorb the beauty of the tranquil purple and blue waters people were tapping your brains and one can't blame them but is that what the dinner table's like at the in the Alma Green household or not uh, no not at all but when I'm at a table as you know David with other astronomers then it's always so interesting to find out what they're doing and what yes. they're thinking so that's a rare opportunity to catch up on on these technical things. But but being so familiar with what each other is doing on a day to day basis, there's no need for that kind of discussion. I suppose if you compress the whole year's worth of dinner time conversation about yes. astronomy yes. Uh, to one or two uh, dinners, then uh, you would think it would be uh, filled with technical discussions, just as it is for other astronomers who I only see once a year. Mm -hmm. But because we can chat about these things so uh, commonly, there's no real need to uh, go into it in any depth yes. at any one time. So it's <laughs> it's the news, it's the day-to-day -day events, it's, it's just what's going on, like everyone else. Now, Bruce, of course, people often say to me, you know, will... Uh, for example, our twins follow in mommy and daddy's footsteps. Now, I know for I know that, of course, you are both proud parents of Lauren, who's got her doctorate in oceanography, and Scott, who's a brilliant, brilliant uh, writer and musician and so forth. Uh, could you just uh, tell us, as they were growing up, uh, you know, there's always this pressure, will you follow in mommy and daddy's footsteps? 
How did you and Debbie actually approach this? I think we both thought that the most important thing for a young person is to learn to think on their own. Yes. And in addition to learn to question everything, to to question what they see in the natural world, yes. why is this? Yes. To question what they see around them because progress is made when people question and try to make things better uh, with the answers to those questions. So we would encourage them to ask questions. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I would we had this little thing if if someone would have a interesting question, not an answer, but an interesting question, uh, I'd give them a quarter, you know, a quarter of a dollar, mm-hmm. a little coin. Yes. Uh, we'd call these quarter questions. So it was just an encouragement to to say not only should you be sitting there wondering about things, but it's okay to ask these questions and it's good. It's it's wonderful to not know mm-hmm. because that gives you so much to do. The things that are known are, are sort of done and sealed up. The things that are not known give us things to do and to wonder about. So that's the realm where we should be thinking. Yes. Um, and it's, of course, good for young people to grow up realizing that they can contribute, that not everything is known, that yes. not everything is the way it should be yes. or it yes. is right now. And yes. they have a, a big part in making changes for the better. Yes. Discovering new things. Yes. And I'm thrilled each one has, of these um, two children, has gone about this uh, this quest for individuality and original yes. and imagination in a different way. One fell in the yard on the science part and one fell mm. in the yard on the art part. Mm. And I mm. think that, you know, as they say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and Yet there is a great diversity in in the types of things that one can do while still treasuring originality and imagination. I love the way you put it, the quest to be an individual, the quest to be whether one becomes an astronomer, whether one becomes an oceanographer, whether one becomes a physician, whatever one's dream is, I really believe, especially at this epoch in our history in South Africa, that it is so important that there's a journey, there's a there's a step-by-step journey, is there not, Bruce? Uh, the quest, to use Bruce Almagreen's words, the quest for individuality. Bruce, I have a question for you, and that is the following. I have got 250 students at uh, university, and... Uh, I notice that a lot of these uh, young uh, leaders of tomorrow, a a lot of these young, brilliant minds are addicted to technology. In other words, they simply cannot think without their little computer, without their laptop or their iPhone or iPad or whatever they have. But uh, what is your viewpoint with regard to, you know, one thinks of Albert Einstein, for example, sitting at his desk with a pencil and a, a pen, and perhaps a pen, uh, generally a pencil, I think, and, uh, you know, a piece of paper, and he scribbled away and dreamed forth some of the greatest equations ever dreamt by mankind and greatest theories. What is your viewpoint, you know, growing up and working in this incredibly uh, interesting domain of computers? 
with regard to technology and creativity amongst young mindsets. Right, I understand the question, and it was asked a different way 20 years ago when hand calculators were first available. Should students be allowed to use them? The answer is always yes. Einstein would have used computers, I think, had he had them. One always can add to a personal ability with these uh, technical supplements, the computers and the, the, the new ways of thinking about things, of yes. connecting with others. If you just imagine, not only are the speeds and storage capabilities of computers increasing, but the ability to socially connect with each other is increasing. And we see in science particularly and many other fields how these social connections lead to much faster progress. Mm -hmm. When many people can each contribute individual skills to a project, mm -hmm. uh, there may be a 20-author paper, but the result is, is far superior to what one person can do on their own. It's a, a greater um, concentration of skill in, in one's own field and a, a greater ability to, co to collaborate with others to combine all these specialties and to, and to make progress. So the, the social advances driven by computers is all to the good, yes. the technical advances all to the good. And I think uh, young people realize this, there may be a step ahead of us yes. or two steps. Yes. And the particular things they're doing are, are changing with, with the times, uh, the particular things that are capable on computers change with times, but there's an ever-growing trend to more and more uh, computers and, and, and supplementary uh, technical devices in our lives, in our cars, in our appliances at home, and that all is to help us. So do you believe that, the, uh, sorry to interject, do you believe, Bruce, that technology, if used as our, uh, not as our master, but as our slave, can actually help us immensely? I'm really concerned of those people where their technology is actually their master, their thinker, their think tank. Well, that's, that's true. One needs to understand at a very basic level the physical principles. If you're talking about a technical field, whatever it is, the chemistry or the, the uh, material science, uh, the mathematics, the physics, one has to understand from the beginning, the equations and the mathematics that's underlying it. Um, where computers help is in solving some of these equations in ways that the pen and pencil cannot do. Mm -hmm. In visualizing extremely complex solutions yes. instead of just the old-fashioned yes. line drawing. Yes. By now, color movies or 3D color movies, things like this. So it's a way of solving problems that could never be solved. On the other hand, we have to first master the problems that could always be solved with our brains and our pencils. That's understood to be the very first step. And then after we get that far, we have the intuition and the ability to now advance to more sophisticated tools, such as computers, to help us solve the bigger problems. Yes. So this is a step. Yes. And the educational process is taking longer now. Um, it's, it's, again, the elementary education in mathematics and science, supplemented by uh, the teenage years, supplemented by college, which brings us up to the state of sciences, 
in the uh, 20th century, for example, but then supplemented after that by continuing education with, with computers evolving so rapidly it is a life process. Continuing uh, yes. the education to use yes. these tools into more and more and, and better and better with more sophistication. So the underpinnings have to be there. That is the job of the teachers in the elementary and in, in teenage years and in the college years. But the, uh, the branching out to a greater depth, yes. greater ability, that's what computers can give us. Excellent. Uh, we have Duncan who's got a question. Uh, what's uh, our take on evolution versus God in the Big Bang? But given that we've just got about three minutes, Duncan, I'd be so appreciative, so appreciative if you'd call me next week on WeChat and I'd like to look at it in depth. I'd like to look at your question in depth because that will take 10 to 15 minutes for us to address properly. But what I'd like to just um, uh, ask you, Bruce, is that a question has also popped up on the screen. How long do you believe it will take before man lands on the planet Mars? <laughs> well, we're, we're not quite technically capable. No, again, technology. And there is a challenge, the, the human challenge, to survive that long trip. The, uh, the speeds will have to be somewhat normal. You can't pop there at the speed of light. It's hard to accelerate people too much. Yes. And so the speeds will be normal orbital speeds, and so the time scales are measured in, in years or fractions yes. of fractions year. And to be yes. totally exposed to the dangers of space, namely cosmic rays and solar storms and things like that, for a long time, to be weightless for that long a time, it's quite a... A spacecraft is quite a fragile environment. In space, we are well protected here on the Earth's surface from all the hazards of space. So this is a big challenge. It's the human challenge. Getting machines there is, of course, quite feasible and has mm -hmm. been done. Mm -hmm. Very Like a curiosity, a yes. There, mm -hmm. You're facing that biological challenge, and that is, is a very difficult one. We've been talking to Bruce Almagreen, one of the legendary minds who works at IBM in the, in the incredible, awesome state of New York. And it's been an absolute joy, Bruce, to have you online with us for you to share some of the technological challenges which we face in South Africa and around the world with regard to storing so much data that if we use the analogy of raindrops, I mean, we just goes right off scale. It's been an incredible joy. Thank you for joining us, Bruce. So wonderful to talk with you and everyone there in your listening audience. My pleasure. Thank you, Bruce. Goodbye. Goodbye.